You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. This is Capri Gaffaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. On today's episode of the show, we're focusing on the unique and tight-knit community of hobos that congregate every year in Britt, Iowa, celebrating Hobo Days. And we welcome one of their royalty, a former hobo queen, Connecticut Shorty, that introduces us into her world and, of course, to Hobo Stew. Shorty, I'm excited to have you on Eat Your Heartland Out. You have such an interesting story, as does uh, the community of Britt, Iowa, and uh, its connection to uh, the hobo community. So thanks for uh, joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, so let's start out with with your personal story. Um, you know, you're known as Connecticut Sh- Shorty, um, but how did you? What's your direct connection to the hobo community? Uh, my direct connection to the hobo community started in 1990. My father, Connecticut Slim, caught the westbound in 1990, and I uh, went to Bird Iowa to bury him in the National Hobo Cemetery there. And that was my first introduction to the hobo world that he lived in for so many years. Prior to that, I was aware he was a hobo, but I really had never been to Bird Iowa. So I went there to bury him in 1990. That's when I met all his uh, hobo friends. I still thank him for introducing me to this wonderful group of people and uh, and became involved. And then eventually I became uh, National Queen of the Hobos in 1992. And uh, I'm kind of like their hobo historian now since I've been going there 31 years. And I, you know, seem to I used to do cemetery talks in the cemetery. So uh, I am quite connected with them. I actually lived in Brit a couple of years. I don't live there anymore. So um, I just love the city of Brit, the Hobo Convention and the Hobo lifestyle. It's just a wonderful historic thing that I like to work to preserve. And there's so much to, there's so much to preserve and so much, uh, you know, I think to learn and, and, you know, to really, um, you know, you, you have so much insight into this world that I think is really not known to, to many, you know, Americans, anyone really, uh, outside of the hobo world. I mean, just as you mentioned, your, your, your father caught the westbound. And, and I know because we've speaking, spoken previously that that means passed away. Um, so, you know, there, there are all these kind of customs that are, um, part of the hobo community that I think are very special and specific. Um, and, you know, Brit, Iowa somehow, you know, became kind of the hobo capital. You mentioned the cemetery. They have the, the Brit Hobo Days. 
Why Brit Iowa? Why Brit Iowa? I mean, you have hobos travel the, the country, right? Um, so why, why settle there? Well, one of their great uh, meeting places in uh, the 1800s was uh, the area around Chicago, Chicago and the general, uh, you know, cities around Chicago. Big, big railroad, big railroad hub, obviously, Chicago. Right. A lot of hobos passed through Chicago, wandered in and out, especially in the 18, early 1900s. And uh, there was out grumbling, you know, in the um, newscasts and on the radio that they were very unhappy there. They weren't happy with the, you know, the, uh, we call them uh, bulls. The, the police department was hassling them. And if they had a vagrancy, they'd be put in jail and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the somehow the business merchants and Brit, a group of them, had caught wind of this. And they decided that they're going to invite the hobos to hold their annual convention in Brit, Iowa, which was a small farming community. It's 2000 now, but I, the population I'm sure was less in uh, uh, 1899, 1900. So they invited uh, the hobos to come and a man named a hobo named Charles Noe. He came to represent the hobos. He had a special title, Grand Head Pipe of the Hobos. They, they have these titles and that's a little above the king. The, the Grand Head Pipe is uh, responsible for the jungle and the communications uh, with the cities and stuff like that. They're kind of in charge of uh, the whole operation for this convention and stuff. So he showed up in Britain, uh, 1899 and uh, negotiated with the city to uh, let the hobos know there was going to be a convention there this year instead of in uh, the outskirts of Chicago. And I think the big uh, catch all with, um, you know, they let them stay in the fair, local fairgrounds at that time and stuff. And but I think the big draw for the hobos was they were going to give them free German suds and German <laughs> suds is a, a free German beer, a type of German beer. So that really attracted the hobos because a lot of them did like to sip a little, you know. <laughs> so they, they showed up in 1990. They came in from all over all over the country, uh, not just the Chicago area. And they trains were more frequent then than they are now. And they come up by train, get off the trains in Britain, uh, hold the first annual convention there. They've been going back ever since. The only time they didn't have the convention was, uh, I think, a few years after the first convention. They they didn't have a couple of they didn't have a couple of conventions, but then they started it up again. So wait, just just to, just to, just to stop for a second. Nineteen hundred, not nineteen ninety, right? Yeah, no, nineteen hundred. I'm sorry. I uh, yeah, eighteen ninety nine, nineteen hundred was the first convention. Okay, and then uh, they um, started coming back and. The only time they did not have a convention in Brit was in, during the war, 1940 to 1945, World War II, and also for the first year of the uh, virus that we're all, we all were dealing with, so we're still dealing with. So other than that, they've had a, a convention every year. They still meet on Saturday after their uh, cemetery service of uh, uh, anybody in the hobo community that's, uh, you know, really known part of the hobo community, the hobos and some regulars that come to the uh, conventions and support the hobos. And we still have a meeting. Uh, years ago at these convention meetings, they talk about uh, the dangerous rail yards, where the jobs were, mm-hmm. and those type of things. Now, now they'll talk about if there's any problems in the jungle itself, if there's any problems with the town, uh, that type of stuff will come up uh, more than... Uh, because there's less rail riders today, of course. 
Right. So, you know, you, you mentioned the hobo jungle a number of times. Um, and for those of, uh, those of us who are maybe not familiar with what that is and why it exists, fill us in. Well, the hobo jungles, uh, in the 1800s, early 1900s, up until about the 1950s, were really campsites all over America along the railroad tracks where hobos would, when they got off trains, they knew where they were. Uh, they would meet there and they usually had a pot of stew going. That's what they were famous for because it fed a lot of people. And they would uh, uh, tell stories, talk about problems on the road, places hobos can get work. Uh, if there was any danger out there, uh, rail yards to avoid and stuff. Because in the early 1900s, a lot of the bulls, as we call them, the railroad police, they would you know, beat the hobos. They even shot some of them in the, back in those oh times. Goodness. So that that was the type of stuff that would be talked about in the jungle. Sometimes they'd play music. Hobos love music. But most hobos would carry like a uh, harmonica would be a instrument of choice because they're, you know, getting on and off trains and things like that. Most of them got on and off moving trains, uh, not trains sitting still. So once in a while, there'd be one like uh, Woody Guthrie was a hobo. He did some yeah. Uh, hobo in his time, but he carried a guitar, but very few people would carry a guitar. Most of them, if they played music like my father, Connecticut Slim, he played the harmonica. So that was the uh, instrument of choice for most of them, if, if they were musical at all. And that was pretty much that, mostly uh, talking about jobs uh, was a big well, thing, of course. I want to... I want to go back to I want to go back to the to the jungle and particularly the hobo stew in a minute and some of the other food aspects because of course this is a, a show about food and culture. But before I get before I get into that, I want to maybe um, dig a little deeper about you know your experience as a hobo. We know your connection to you know sort of the hobo community through your dad, but you know you yourself um, you know were you know rode the rails, um, and that's pretty rare I, I think for for a woman. What was your experience? How long were you out there? I rode the rails. Uh, I st my first rail riding trip was in 1993. I was hobo queen at the time, and I rode with my hobo king from Dunsmere, California, to the uh, Roseville Rail Yards, which is by uh, Old Sacramento, California. Mm -hmm. That's along the coast of California. And I felt I should ride because I'm involved with this hobo life now. I felt I should have that experience. So that was the wonderful ride with him. We rode the what they call the porch of the grain cars, you know, the grain cars that go into all those grain silos around the Midwest. Well, they have a deck on some of them that we call a porch. And that was my very first ride. And then I rode through about 1999. I have done close to 5,000 miles on the rails, uh, rode box cars. I almost rode a, a lumber car once. They could be a little dangerous. I didn't get on that. But most of the time it was grain cars or uh, box cars, double stack containers, those truck backs that come by on like a flatbed cars. They're usually two stories high. Most of them, some could be one, but we ride the two story high ones and you ride the back of them where the uh, uh, sometimes the top one hangs over and they make a little roof, you know, to protect you a little yeah. from the elements. And then there's the um, piggybacks. There's the flatbeds that hold the truck backs on them. I've ridden them where you you go under the uh, truck trailer, you know, and you back up to the wheels, uh, the back wheels, and you just, you know, put your sleeping bag or whatever gear you have around you to break the wind. And, and that's where you ride. I rode uh, piggyback from uh, uh, 
St. Paul, Minnesota to uh, Chicago, to the Pullman section of Chicago with a, a few other people, uh, two, uh, two other people, uh, Minneapolis Jewel and Frog and stuff. So I've had quite a few rides, uh, great rides, really. <laughs> so it sounds, it sounds incredible. <laughs> it sounds like an incredible, you know, lifestyle and, and, you know, one where you have to be able to see so much. Um, you just rattled off a couple names of folks. How do people get their hobo names? I mean, how did you get Connecticut Shorty? Uh, my hobo name was given to me by a, a fairly famous hobo named Steam Train, Mari Graham. Uh, I'm a small person, so he thought my hobo name should be Connecticut Shorty. Uh, uh, prior to that, I was called Twinkle Toes because I, I like to dance. And he thought <laughs> that wasn't fitting for me. So he, he, in 1992 in Logansport, Indiana, he changed my name to Connecticut Shorty. What's it? Do you get some sort of a, do you get some sort of a like naming ceremony? Uh, no, he just, he just uh, gave me that name and that just became my name. Uh, uh, some people get dubbed with a name. I didn't get officially dubbed. He just said, your name should be Connecticut Shorty. And I said, okay. And I started using that name. But we, uh, sometimes a person will have an official dubbing and be given an official hobo name. But that's kind of more ceremonial now in the hobo convention. Uh, years ago, you just picked up a nickname and that was it. The, the hobos in these jungles, you know, that was hardcore living stuff. They didn't have ceremonies giving people names or anything. They just started um, uh, calling you by a certain name and it seemed to stick most of the time. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com. 
com slash chef. Well, what about your uh, your time when you're riding the rails, uh, your experience in the hobo jungle? I mean, you know, obviously you're going to have to eat while you're traveling. Um, and, you know, the hobo jungles seem to be kind of a centralized known point for folks when they're traveling uh, to stop and, and maybe, you know, make, a, you know, or share a hot meal. What What was that like for you? Well, that was more prevalent, of course, in the heyday of the hobos. By the 1970s, pretty much those jungles kind of disappeared. So when mm. I was riding, I always rode with a uh, a man, really, who had been riding the rails 25 or 30 years. Different, you know, Luther the Jet, Frog, different different people, ad man. And uh, uh, we usually stayed, uh, usually you stay under bridges or, you know, we've actually had little campfires and stuff. But we stay pretty much to ourselves because there can be uh, danger in numbers, especially today. During the heyday of the hobo, when the steam era hobos were riding, you know, the old steam trains and stuff, uh, that was pretty safe to go into a jungle. You had to ask permission. Hey, hobo, walk. And if they didn't invite you in, you couldn't even go into their jungles. Mm. But nowadays, you kind of don't want to mix with people that you don't know. Even on a train, you don't want to get on a train if there's anybody else on it. You know, you have to be careful what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so today, uh, we, we usually carry food in our packs, like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, peanut butter and crackers, you know, maybe some cheese crackers. Uh, always have matches to light a little fire if you want to. And uh, wear, we wear black clothes, dark clothes, uh, so that we don't stand out in the yards. It's safer to get on a train at night than in the daytime, of course. There's less chance of being seen because you you very well can get arrested. Mm -hmm. I, for, I fortunately have never been arrested, but I could have been. I've been threatened a lot of times to be arrested. But uh, so pretty much that and uh, the food generally is uh, uh, simple food. You're not really, really cooking a lot or anything on the road, but uh, you can go into the, you know, if you want a soup kitchen, a Salvation Army, and, you know, they would give you food. Sometimes the church will give you food if you're really hard up. Um, we don't knock on doors anymore uh, to ask for food to, and ask for work the way the steam air hobos did. That was uh, the they rode the old steam trains as opposed to the modern diesel trains they have today. And they stopped more frequently. They would stop every hundred miles or so for water and the hobos had more access to getting on and off than today. You know, the trains are more secure and faster, so you can't really be hopping on and off them or anything. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. So we, uh, um, we're pretty self-sufficient in other words, what we have on our backpack, you know, would certainly let us live for several days if, if we got, what we call set out in a train. They set you out in the middle of nowhere. Your, your grain car say you're riding on. They could set it out on a side track and just leave it there for some reason or other, the railroad. Sure. So you have to have uh, food and uh, be self-sufficient. Make sure you have your warm clothes and your bedroll. And, you know, so you could really survive out there if you have to. Right. Well, you know, since you're, you know, you were saying you're kind of like the hobo, uh, hobo historian, um, when, you know, sort of the, the steam era or the, the hobo heyday, um, you know, what things would they have made in those hobo jungles? I mean, you mentioned hobo stew. It's something that, you know, it's a term that's been thrown around. And I don't even think that people realize that maybe hobo stew isn't just, you know, a cute name for, you know, a stew. It actually does have roots, you know, in the hobo lifestyle. Uh, yes, it does. The, uh, uh, there was usually a, you know, a huge pot of some sort. And uh, I'll back up one second. When you went to a hobo jungle in the heyday of the hobos, 
when they worked and wandered, that's what they were, working wanderers. They worked to wander and wandered to work. These people uh, made enough money, had to wander less and kept going. So when you went into a hobo jungle, there was always clean pots and pans hanging on the trees. Uh, there was usually a place to make a campfire, you know, and you could usually gather wood somewhere and start a campfire. And they'd have big a big kettle of some sort uh, that would go onto this campfire. And they'd start with water, of course, and then they'd add stew ingredients, which would be whatever the hobos could contribute that wandered into the jungle. Like one hobo may have borrowed a chicken from a farmer, so they'd, you know, get the feathers off that, throw that in. Uh, it could be potatoes. Uh, the hobos would sometimes go to the towns or the farmers and ask for uh, potatoes or whatever they could give them. So anything they could get would be thrown into that stew. Corn, corn's a big thing, of course, in, in farm country, tomatoes, and it, and they just cook it really uh, for hours and hours and hours. So anybody that showed up into the jungle could always get a hot stew. You never were guaranteed on the meat. Sometimes the meat could have been some fresh roadkill if they could find it. So it wasn't always chicken, <laughs> deer, it could be anything, but uh, it kept them fed and it kept them going. There was always coffee. There was always a pot of coffee on the jungle fire, too. You know. Wow, I, I have I have a an image in my head, and I, I bet our listeners do too of, of what these you know old time uh, you know hobo jungles uh, would have been like. Um, you know, so today you know, you know there's the hobo jungle that comes together uh, you know in Brit Iowa during those hobo days, and food is part of, food is part of that celebration too, right? So what what can one find? Um, if they come to Brit, Iowa during those hobo days? If you come to Brit, Iowa during hobo days, there's always food in the hobo jungle. Uh, today, it's uh, more modern. They Over the last, I'd say, 10 years, they've even gotten a, you know, a, a, a small kitchen area and stuff where they actually can cook food more than over the jungle fire. Years ago, they cooked it right over the fire in Brit, in, you know, the, in the 1900s and 50s and stuff, just like... Um, like the old time hobo does. But now if you come, you'll find a, uh, sometimes a, a special meal where uh, somebody donated something like uh, Connecticut Tootsie and her husband once in a while make an Italian meal with fresh Italian sausage. Uh, one year, Ink Man, two years, Ink Man roasted a pig in the jungle. So that was kind of fun. And where's he from? He's from someplace. I, I remember you talking about him. Uh, he was raised in Chicago. He's a, quite a rail rider. And then he moved to the West Coast, to uh, Seattle area, and now he's living in Alaska. Ink Man's living wow. in Alaska now. Is, is Ink Man still riding? Uh, not that I know of, unless he's doing something in Alaska, but he, he just loves that uh, type of a lifestyle, that wilderness kind of lifestyle. Sure. In, the, in his uh, hobo heyday, I'll call it, he, uh, he was a, a rail rider out of Chicago to Britain. He rode all over the country. And now then he, he actually worked for the railroad in uh, as a conductor in uh, the Washington state area. And then he oh, wow. moved to Alaska. So he has quite a background, actually. And he liked, wow, he liked that... to roast the pig. He, you know, he, he was uh, quite a character, actually. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like this is the reason why I asked about Ink Man, too, is because, you know, you're just talking about you have folks that are from one part of the country. They're making Italian. You now have folks that are from a different part of the country and they're making, you know, roasted pig. And, and you know, what else are people bringing to, you know, bringing to the table, so to speak, at the hobo uh, jungle? Uh, a big contributor is the local farmers around the Brit area. They bring in the corn, the tomatoes, onions, if they have them. They're, they're big contributors to 
to food in the jungle. Uh, Collingwood kid who lives in uh, East uh, Cleveland, Ohio, he usually brings in some canned goods. That I know where I know where Collingwood is. I'm from Ohio. <laughs> yeah, not even not even uh, dented sometimes, but he he actually. You call it dumpster dive, and we call him the king of dumpster dive, and he's never been hobo king. But he'll bring in some canned goods that he found in dumpsters, but they're they're not open or anything, so vegetables or whatever. And some people bring in meat, uh, you know, frozen, of course. And uh, hot dogs and hamburgers aren't uncommon. You know, somebody could have hot dogs and hamburgers, but that type of stuff. So, so you never really know what you're going to be getting to eat in the jungle. But it's always good, and it's always cooked well, and nobody's ever gotten sick. Well, that's all. Those are all definite pros uh, when it comes to food. That's what you're looking for. Now, I know from uh, you know from some of the the things that I've seen, and and I think from from our previous conversation that they're actually in Brit because it is kind of this hobo capital. There is um, a restaurant right called the Hobo House, right? The Hobo House, Mary Jo's Hobo House. It's on Main Avenue, right downtown, right across the street from the Hobo Museum. And they have something called hobo hash or hobo hash browns. What's hobo that? Hobo hash browns. Mary Jo's famous for her hobo hash browns or her secret rep- recipe of uh, making these that nobody else seems to have ever figured out her ingredients. But we don't, you know, it's cheese and it's onions and uh, meat and stuff in them, but uh, also ingredients that nobody else knows. I would say anybody who goes to Britain goes to the hobo house has to experience her hobo hash browns at least once. Believe me, when they come to your plate, they're going to be more more than you can eat. Way more. That's than- That sounds incredible. <laughs> yes, it is. And also the hobo house has a lot of hobo memorabilia on the walls, you know, um, uh, in hobo monikers and stuff. And, and other, other food Mary Jo has. She's, she's a really good cook. Uh, perfect cook. Wonderful. Best restaurant oh, in town, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it does sound like if you're going to go to the hobo capital, you got to go to the hobo house, right? I mean, that's got to be that's got to be top top of the list. Uh, what is there? Is there anything else? I mean, this got this may be one of the only times that you know our audience may hear about hobos, um, you know, or hobo traditions, um, and certainly you know, kind of the traditions around food. Is there anything else before we let you go, Shorty, that you want our audience to know about hobos, the hobo lifestyle, and certainly, like I said, because this is um, this is a, a show about food and culture. Um, anything specific about you know Brit and and food, um, you know, or even the role maybe that that hobos played in in you know agriculture, if that's a thing, let us know um, because you know this is really an opportunity for people to learn about a really unique part of the American landscape. Well, the hobos themselves are responsible for, uh, you know, helping work the farms and the ranches and stuff across America. And, you know, farmers need a lot of help at harvest time, picking the cherries and the apples, too. They did all that type of stuff. But in Britain itself, during the hobo convention, there's a big event on Main Street itself with all kinds of food vendors. There's uh, uh, pork on the stick. There's barbecue food, there's any kind of food you want right on the street besides the local restaurants. So um, if you're into food, that's a, you know, a great place to, you know, go sample some food maybe that you haven't had, haven't had in a long time or, uh, or would like to try. So that, that's good. And there's all kinds of events, free entertainment, uh, little car rides for kids and a carnival comes to town. So it's, 
and this is outside of the hobo jungle. And then at night in the hobo jungle, we have the entertainment, the hobos entertain, uh, mostly hobos playing music and stuff. So, so the whole experience is something everybody should do once. My theory is you have to check it out and do everything once in your life, anything you possibly can. And that's what everybody should do connected to the hobo convention. Make sure they go into the hobo museum where they'll learn a lot more history of the hobos that I've been able to talk about. And uh, visit the hobo cemetery, see where all these steam air hobos that rode the rails in uh, early 1900s are buried in, into the 50s, 60s, 70s. And uh, we actually have a couple of... Uh, I'll mention the Amana colonies briefly. The Amana colonies, which is a great German sect of people living in, uh, oh, outside of the Cedar Rapids area in Iowa. Yeah, I, I actually did a whole episode on the Amana colonies. So right, um, right. our listeners are familiar with their very, very interesting uh, community there. Right. And of course, everybody knows about good German food. So that's a given when you're talking about the German people. But they, we, I actually was able from uh, 2016 to 2018, I researched the Hobo Convention's connection to the uh, Amana colonies, uh, the hobos, you know, because they were a great farming community. They had seven villages, really, and they uh, they uh, all had the big farms and they needed the help. So a lot of hobos worked for the uh, Amana colonies and they would uh, give them a place to stay and, of course, free food and, and a job. So that was ideal for the hobos. So I was able to connect uh, at, at least four hobos directly to Brit. Uh, two of them became hobo kings. Uh, uh, Scoop Shovel Scotty was quite famous. He was Hobo Queen King eight times. And uh, Hair Breath Harry, which is a strange name, he was Hobo King three times. Both of those hobos worked in the Amanda colonies. Hmm. And then there was a, uh, and then another hobo was, uh, that was connected to him, uh, was a, uh, a hobo that, um, uh, Blackie was his name. And he actually ended up living in the Amanda colonies. He passed in the Amanda colonies. And he's buried in South Amana, and he actually hmm. was at the first hobo convention in Britain, 1900. I found old articles from the Chicago newspapers that uh, mentioned his name as being at the hobo convention. So, so it's interesting that the uh, farmers of Britain, including the Amana colonies, really gave, allowed the hobos to uh, have such a wonderful lifestyle by giving them jobs. And that's, of course, Indiana, all of the Midwest. Uh, not just uh, not just Iowa. Yeah, that is, you know, I think a really great place for us to, you know, end our conversation because it does really show that, you know, there is that connection uh, to food in everything that, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, think about, but it's there. And, you know, um, you have your own uh, culture when it comes to some of the some of the food, but you also hobos are an important part of you know actually you know harvesting and part of that agricultural community in parts of the Midwest, which is also incredibly interesting. Um, one final thing: if people want to go to Hobo Days, how do they learn more? Is there a website they can reach? Yes, there's a website, uh, uh, hobodays.com. And all you have to put in, actually, you could Google National Hobo Convention and all the different information on the uh, Hobo Convention would come up and you could, you know, have a choice of clicking on a, a lot of things out there to get information. But the, we do have a website, uh, hobodays.com, I think is the website. So, but it's easy to find. You could Google, um, just Google Hobos or National Hobo Convention and, and you'll get all the information you need and then some actually. <laughs> 
Fantastic. Well, I know that there are going to be some listeners who are, their curiosity is going to be piqued by this conversation. Connecticut Shorty, thank you again for joining us on Eat Your Heartland Out. Okay. Thank you for having me. Good luck to you guys. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.